This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Deputy Director of the Americas Program and Director of the U.S.-Mexico Futures Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Was how professional the Mexican but government. are we ready? Long-term I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. What does it mean to be Hispanic nowadays, and specifically, what does it mean in Florida, if anything? For one, a block is sort of solid and immovable. However, when it comes to the Hispanic vote in Florida, we see that it sways from election to election. And here to join me is Ana Quintana. Senior Policy Analyst for Latin America at the Heritage Foundation. So Anna, first of all, you get the distinction of being both uh, last and first in that you're the last podcast we're recording in 2018. But our listeners, we're speaking to them from the past. They won't be hearing this until January 2nd. So you get to be the last (laughs) podcast of 2018 and the first podcast of 2019 at the same time. It's like a podcast inception. I love it. It's like like crossing (laughs) the international dateline for podcasts. Uh, Anyway, so um, we're going to do something a little bit different for our sort of first and last podcast, and that's talk about the United States. Uh, I I don't think we've actually ever talked about U.S. politics and policy on the show. It's always sort of focused on Mexico or Venezuela and so on. Um, or at least policies towards those countries. Um, what I'd like to talk about today is, um, and you've, you've already, you know this subject very well, but there was a, a very interesting piece that appeared in Politico a few weeks ago. Uh, and basically it was sort of a postmortem on the Florida vote, specifically on two big races there, the Senate race and the governor's race, in which uh, Bill Nelson lost uh, to Rick Scott and uh, Ron DeSantis uh, beat Todd Gillum. And both of those were sort of down to the wire. There was a vote recount in both cases, um, et cetera. And essentially, as it oh, lots of times does in Florida, kind of comes down to South Florida, um, a handful of precincts. <laughs> Sounds familiar, right? <laughs> and what I thought was sort of fascinating about the article is it, it made the point, um, again, none of this is sort of particularly new, but I thought it, was, it did it in a sort of a good way in, in that um, – you know, like a lot of politicians, uh, Bill Nelson once again made the mistake of conflating Hispanic as sort of uh, this monolithic term to refer to to any, uh, you know, voter uh, sort of south of the Rio Grande, right? Um, but as we know, Hispanic in most areas of the country, particularly California, Texas, really just means Mexican. In Florida, not so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have these real interesting trends now uh, in the Cuban vote between older Cubans and younger Cubans. You have different voting patterns among Puerto Ricans, uh, again, between ones who have lived here a while and ones who just came over after the hurricane. And then you've got Venezuelans, Ecuadorans, Colombians thrown into the mix. So you're sort of an expert on this, and I've given you permission to go into the weeds, but I'd I'd like you to kind of walk us through, Anna, in terms of what you see um, you know, sort of the current state of play in terms of uh, voting habits, particularly in South Florida, among those groups, and and what do you see coming down the road, particularly for 2020? I mean, so the the Nelson mistake, I think that's that's something that you would expect to see happen from 
like a, you know, a congressional candidate like in northern Maine, right? Somebody to make that sort of a novice mistake and not a seasoned senator from a state like Florida. But for Nelson to have consistently made that mistake and have taken the Hispanic vote for granted just showed that either either the apathy or just a lack of attention, frankly, to the Hispanic community. And just frankly, just it's just a problem that the Democrats consistently have, that they just consistently take demographics for granted and just presume that just because a group comes from the same Spanish-speaking background or whatever, that they're just going to consistently vote for um, one particular party. And I think the other uh, factor in all of this was that, you know, folks were just so disenchanted and so unhappy with Trump that they were just going to vote Democratic. And that was just not the case with Florida. That was probably the case in some minor House House races. I think in the Florida 26th, that was the case in the Florida 27th as as well. Um, But definitely not the Florida Senate race and not the gubernatorial race at all. Um, And kind of, you know, looking at how groups in Florida vote in general. The Cuban community in Florida, we obviously know how the Cuban community votes, right? And I think that's just it's something that's changing with generations. You know, you see how the older, you know, the original exile groups vote. Um, people of my generation, you know, I'm 31 years old. My generation tends to be a bit more progressive and people who are a bit younger than I am. I think that's they're getting a bit more progressive as well. And I think that's something that the Florida conservative movement needs to really recognize and understand why is it that this is occurring um, and needs to do something to kind of capture that vote. Um, Venezuelans, I think they are coming to the United States and they're coming largely to Florida for the same reasons that Cubans arrived to the United States. And they are not being captured by the progressive movement the same way that I would say Mexicans or Central Americans have been, right, that they are not kind of being lured in by kind of the big government type of perspective where it's like, all right, we're going to be, you know, we're we're lured in by this allure of, of, you know, the Republican Party hates us, the conservative movement hates us. They're coming in because they're fleeing government persecution. They're fleeing kind of state-sponsored persecution, and they're looking for, you know, better economic opportunities. And um, and they recognize that the conservative movement in Florida and the Republican Party in Florida, largely under Rick Scott, has really provided them that. Um, and, I mean, and in, in looking at, at Rick Scott and his monumental, I mean— his monumental successes. I mean, it's just been it's been absolutely incredible to see how he rose from being the Florida Florida's governor and then looking at now how he's how he's the next senator. Um, I mean, it's it's you know, he he's for somebody like Rick Scott, who doesn't really speak Spanish. Right. I mean, some, he absolutely his Spanish is not that. I mean, it's just let's just be honest. It's really not that good. But Rick Scott is somebody who was there at the inauguration of Ivan Duque in Colombia was not a big event in the United States, right? It wasn't something that was very televised, but in the middle of his campaign, he was there at the Colombian president's you know, inauguration because he knew that that was something important. And he knew in Florida that's something that was going to play well. And for Colombians in Florida, they recognized that and they knew that. And the Colombians who were like, you know, so local Colombian newspapers, I mean, they like, that's something that um, that they paid attention to. So Florida's to, weird. <laughs> about Venezuelans, Anna. Yes. I mean, because... Uh, Venezuela continues to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. More and more people continue to flee. I, I don't know what the exact numbers are of Venezuelans living in South Florida, but I'm I'm assuming it's large. Yeah. Um, and that uh, for them uh, who care, well, they all care about their country, but for mm-hmm. those who follow and are v- deeply concerned about U.S. policy yeah. towards Venezuela, um, 
what the administration does or doesn't do in mm-hmm. Venezuela is going to play out, right, in, in 2020. Major League, yes. Uh, Major League. So um, I, I guess my question is, uh, are the Democrats paying attention to that? Because I think one of the other mistakes it seems mm-hmm. like uh, Nelson made and, and probably uh, Todd Gillum, who ran for, unsuccessfully for governor, mm-hmm. is that, again, this, uh, thinking that, you know, Hispanic voters are always going to be with us and so on. Mm-hmm. And and in a lot of precincts that, um, uh, that in fact, Gillum and uh, Scott both lost, mm-hmm. they didn't lose by as much as mm-hmm. Trump did because it appears that the, the administration's harder line of Venezuela contrasted with w- what the Democrats did was enough to make the difference in those communities. And I'm like, you know what? We may n- hate Donald Trump. We may not like the Republicans for every other reason. But on this one issue, on, on what we do with Venezuela, that's how we're going to cast our votes. Or, or we'll stay home, right? I mean, same thing. <laughs> I think for Venezuelans, the administration's strong action on Venezuela, that's something that's mattered to them incredibly. I think every single time that a new sanctions package has been rolled out or, you know, I'll give you when, you know, the vice president, when Tarek el was sanctioned and when that number was finally released, when it was announced that five, over $500 million of his drug-related assets were released when his homes in Brickell are, you know, the smoothie shops. I remember one of them being in Doral was confiscated by the department. Of Treasury. I mean, those are things that invigorate the Venezuelan popu- the population in Doral. There's this one town in in South Florida called Doral that people, you know, in South Florida, in South Florida call Doralzuela because there's just so many Venezuelans who live down there and. They follow the administration's actions against Venezuelans so incredibly closely. So regardless of whatever Trump says against, you know, Mexicans or the wall or whatever, for them, that's absolutely irrelevant. Because when Trump starts talking about there might be a military option against Venezuela, Democrats might be against that. But I mean, that riles that that riles Venezuelans up because back home, they know that their parents are starving. They know that, you know, children are essentially picking garbage off the street to eat. And they know that something needs to be done. And they know that Trump's predecessor, a Democrat, really did not take a strong line against their, you know, against the country that they fled from. Um, So for them, that means something. And I think one area where you see now that Democrats are finally recognizing that they are ought to start taking stronger action against, you know, autocrats is on Nicaragua. Um, you know, Democrats really, I think they were the last ones to start uh, tagging along uh, in Ileana ross Leighton's uh, Nicaragua Investment Conditionality Act, right? It's a it's a bill to, to withhold U.S. financial assistance against the Nicaraguan government. You actually had Democrats lobbying against the bill. You know, the, she introduced that bill years ago, right, when the early warning indicators on the Nicaraguan government was there. Everybody saw that Ortega was following the same actions that that Maduro was kind of that, of, you know, of, of Maduro. And and now that uh, bill finally uh, has signed, has went into law, you know, Senator Cruz was a co-sponsor along with Senator Leahy. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's the only law that you'll ever see Senator Leahy and Senator Cruz, you know, being co-sponsoring together on. Some, somebody get a picture quick. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's something that's never going to happen again in history. I mean, but it happened because that's just something that, you know, it's it's inc- it's that incredibly important. But um, Democrats are hopefully going to start paying attention that there are just some issues in Latin America that require bipartisan consensus. And regardless of where, you know, the dictator falls falls on the ideological spectrum, it's a dictator is a dictator. And, you know, it deserves the U.S. government's kind of, you know, full-throated efforts against them. And I think, you know, even Nicaraguans now in South Florida, they are supportive of President Trump because of that. 
Um, Anna, we're, we're going to take a look at sort of the broader U.S. electoral picture. But before we do that, I want to talk just a bit about Cuba. And, you know, it used to be the iron law of Florida politics since 1961, right, that the Cuban vote could always be counted on to support whichever candidate, usually Republican, took a harder line against the Castros. Uh, now we're sort of in this weird transition period where Fidel's gone, but, you know, Cuba certainly is not a democracy anywhere close to it. But you can sense sort of like it, it's on its deathbed. Uh, and I know yeah. we've been saying that for yeah. the last 30 years. Well, this is supposed to be hopeful here, right? Um, how, how do say, uh, how to say uh, someone of your age, um, uh, does this still have, a, number one, sort of the same emotional power uh, as it did? for, you know, someone um, my age, right, growing up more in the, in the 70s and 80s. Um, and, uh, you know, what, what, are, what are the dynamics in play in terms how, how do you sort of younger Cubans uh, or that community look at um, U.S. foreign policy towards Cuba? I think a lot of that matters with um, how close you are with your family. You know, I think a lot of that depends on what were your family's experiences and how close you were with your grandparents or your parents and how they experienced it. You know, I obviously never personally experienced anything, but my parents did and my grandparents did. And I heard their stories. And that's something that I grew up hearing, you know, their stories and their friends' stories. And every year, you know, at family Christmas parties or even just weekend get-togethers or when my grandfather would get together with his friends to play dominoes or whatever, you would just, you know, hear. And it was just casual as you're in the middle of playing dominoes handing your grandfather a beer he would just tell you as you know because there was this time in the middle of like the revolution that you would just hear you know the firing squad slaughtering people outside and I mean those are things that as like a seven-year-old you're hearing and you just consistently hear about and then you go to school and then you're told by a professor well you know Fidel Castro helped fix the literacy rate in Cuba so maybe the revolution actually was worth it and you're like wait this is absolutely absurd like what are you talking about like thousands of people died here Um, so I think for even so there's for a lot of us right who were even who were just not directly impacted it's still something that's incredibly personal to us and we know and we clearly see that policies of appeasement happening at the same time with just the general you know democratic party's uh, adoption of you know socialism right where it just it tends to be um it tends to be kind of it's it's going in a dangerous direction, right? So I think that's that's the other kind of dangerous direction that where uh, Cuba Cuba not just Cuba policy in general, but just kind of where the Democrats' kind of policies are kind of going in. All right, we're going to zoom out from Florida and talk sort of national politics and national political issues in the U.S. Let's start with a really easy one: immigration. Right? Um, <laughs> uh, let's let's just do a super easy. Uh, oh a, yeah, a thought experience here, a thought experiment here, and that I mean, you've always had the outlines of a deal with respect to immigration. In yeah. that, um, you know, if you, if you give the Democrats more on say regularization or some sort sure. of uh, process that deals with the the number of of immigrants that are already here uh, illegally uh, in exchange for border security, right? That's kind mm-hmm. of always been the classic request. Um, now let's say twenty twenty, we're not going to see anything between now and twenty twenty because yeah. both sides are dug in for tactical political reasons. Sure, you know so. President Trump is not going to give up his wall. We saw what happened in the last few weeks when he sort of thought about it and the blowback he got. Um, and then the Democrats, I think, seen an issue that uh, is golden for them in terms of driving votes. But let's just let's go into a, either President Trump's second term or somebody's second term. And you still have the same fundamentals on the table, right? Border security on one hand and a, and a regular path of some sort on the other. Um, what's the likelihood that you think 
something like we're going to see, I was going to say in our lifetime, but you know, you're going to live a long time. So let's be a little <laughs> bit more optimistic, Ariana. Uh-huh. What's the likelihood you think that we're going to see the, the resurrection of some sort of comprehensive immigration reform package of some sort in the next, say, five years? Oh, God, um, I don't I don't think so at all. Not I at think all. in the I think in the process, we're going to start seeing the loss of a lot more moderate Republican seats. I mean, look what happened with Carlos Curbelo. I mean, he was doing perfectly fine towards the last few weeks of his campaign. And then when the topic of getting rid of birthright citizenship came up and also the um, the fears of the Central American caravans and kind of the how that was just strung up by the media, I mean, that just sunk his campaign, absolutely just sunk and destroyed his campaign. Um, I think that was that, that was an incredible loss, I think, for just the South Florida community, for just Cuban-American representation on within Congress. I mean, he was he was believed to have been a moderate, you know, a moderate Republican. He was actually going to be one of the first Republicans to be a member of the, well, not the first, but, you know, to have rejoined the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, one of the first Cuban-Americans in decades to have been a member of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus again. I don't envision um, comprehensive immigration reform within the next five years. I think the only way to get something to get immigration reform done is piecemeal. We're going to have to get, you know, just moderate incremental things done. Nothing comprehensive is going to be able to be done. I think and another way of I think understanding where conservatives, we're not just Republicans, but where conservatives are on immigration and why the blowback that we're experiencing now with the border wall. Folks have to understand that, you know, when Obama came into power, you know, Republicans lost everything, right? Republicans lost. Republicans lost full control of Congress. They lost the White House. They lost everything. And then Tea Party conservatives all campaigned on defunding Obamacare, defunding Planned Parenthood, and, you know, plussing up border security and a a wall of some sort. Trump came in and he said he was going to do all of those things. There was two years of a Republican-controlled House, Republican-controlled Senate, Republican-controlled White House. Planned Parenthood is still in existence. Obamacare has not been defunded. You know, Obama's Cuba policy is essentially pretty much intact. I mean, they, they were not even able to essentially unravel that. Um, and now he's oh, President Trump is in his last few days of controlling the House. And they at least want to get something accong- accomplished because the conservative base is rightfully pissed off. Um, and that's kind of where why we're now in this middle of this shutdown, this standoff, which, frankly, I think I, who knows where we're going to end up. <laughs> so <laughs> right? tell me this. Do you think uh-huh. that the build this wall is is Donald Trump's equivalent of read my lips in terms of uh-huh. is, is his yeah. loyal base going to hold him accountable in such a way yes. that uh, a year from now, we are looking at really low numbers among Republicans for Donald Trump, which has not happened yet. You know, I mean, he's still up there in the stratosphere in terms of Republican support. I think if I think the loyal, the loyal base is needs to see a very real effort from the president in order to extract something from House Democrats and not even just from House Democrats, from, from Republican leadership. They need to see a real effort. And this shutdown was is, is an effort, right? I mean, a shutdown over Christmas that, you know, led to a tanking of the markets, you know, that was connected to a tanking of the markets, whatever. I mean, that's where they are, the, the belief is that, all right, the president is trying to do something to really achieve border security. And I think now they're, you know, it's finally build the wall is being parsed out and it's not just a wall anymore. Thank 
thankfully it's, you know, border security, additional border barriers, whatever. Um, But I think that the base needs to see something because if not, I think conservative movement leaders, particularly more from kind of the the more from kind of the, the not just the thought leader perspective, but from the media perspective, if they do not see that, if they do not see that the president put in a real hard effort, they are going to bash him, I feel. So now I feel like we're in Las Vegas here. I'm going to ask yeah. you to give me odds. Okay. What are the odds we see a primary challenge to President Trump from the right? So in, in other words, on this issue. So let's say, you, you know, there is no wall a year from now. Not yeah. even close, no funding, no nothing. Yeah. His base is really, really mad and disappointed. Yeah. And they're like, you know, we, we want somebody who's going to do their promises. Now, I can I can easily see, you're not easily, but you can imagine a primary challenge from Senator, you know, Jeff Flake or a Ben Sass or a Bob Corker, right? Yeah. For, for the moderate. But is there, a, you know, somebody from the Freedom Caucus as well? You know, I, I'm going to get it done. Or would that just be suicide? I mean, I think I think that'd be career suicide, right? That's that's the thing. I think anybody who stands up to Trump has has, you know, has they've just been knocked off. I mean, you you have to be suicidal to stand up to him. I mean, he's in an incredibly strong position and he just he goes for the jugular whenever he attacks anybody. I mean, it's, he's he's great at it. That's the thing. He's a master at it. So, so if a year from now I see Anna Quintana and <laughs> Coral Gable saying, I'm I'm running for president, I'll know you'll Oh, God, <laughs> I would never in my life. Are you kidding? <laughs> I'm not old enough. Okay, so now now we're, uh, that's, well, that's true. You're yeah. not. Goodness gracious. All right. Well, 2024, right? That, yeah. yeah. That's here. Okay, so let's be, uh, let's be really optimistic. Yeah. Despite everything we've just said, let's yeah. say 10 years from now. Sure. Uh, we have had uh, some sort of either piecemeal mm-hmm. progress um, or a comprehensive deal, whatever. Mm-hmm. But immigration is no longer a, a hot political issue. Mm-hmm. It's kind of done, uh, in, in, so to speak. Uh, what is a Republican Party strategy to gain among Mexican voters, to gain among Venezuelan voters, Puerto Rican? Because if you remove that, right, it changes the dynamic significantly. Yeah. There, there are now other issues, sort of normal, quote unquote, normal issues yeah. that you can campaign on. And I know we have a difference of view on this. My theory is that it's actually quite promising for conservatives or Republicans because, you know, just looking at the Mexican community, they seem to me they would trend more towards natural conservatism in terms mm-hmm. of uh, they're still much more family oriented. They're still much more conservative on a lot of social mm-hmm. issues. Um, tend to be more blue collar in terms of work and so on. But how do you see it? So I think when it comes to Mexican-Americans, Central Americans and and some countries within South America, you know, like Colombians, they they're definitely much more traditionally minded. I mean, they're a lot more either Catholic or evangelical and their value system lends itself to be much more conservative oriented. That's I completely agree with you. But I think what where Democrats have just been so successful at is they play the identity card and the race card so well and the, you know, I identify with you, we kind of, we speak with the same accent, we eat the same type of food, so obviously I'm going to be able to represent your interests far better, even though, you know, I live in New York City and you live in El Paso, but trust me, I can represent your interests far better. Um, Somebody like Beto, for example, right, his real name is Robert Francis, but hey, he starts going by Beto and all of a sudden he's like, oh my God, he's Hispanic. And it's like, no, dude, you're you're not. You're like Irish, like, I don't know, isn't he like Irish or something? It's like absolutely absurd. I mean, the guy had a DUI on his record. Like he had like all of these like horrible things. But like all of a sudden he's like, you know, campaigning as he's like this holier than thou, like, you know, Catholic Hispanic. Um, 
But and, and so I think one area where I, I think conservatives and just just tend to inadvertently and because I don't think it's on purpose. I really don't think they 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 do this on purpose. We're just not good at identity politics. We're just we're not. And I think it's we shouldn't be right. We shouldn't play to the lowest common denominator, which is a person's skin color, which is a person's ethnic background. Right. These are things we can't control. We can't control how much melanin we have on our skin. We can't control where our ancestors happen to be from. And I don't think we should play on that as to kind of like, oh, you know, you're from, you know, blah, blah, blah town. So you have to vote for me. Like that's like that's such third world politics. That's horrible. But if that's, you know, but I at the same time, I don't think conservatives should conservatives should evaluate whether things they say or do appear hostile. And if that's the case, then maybe they ought to take, you know, a moment and maybe reevaluate whether uh, they ought to take a different approach. Banana, don't you think, let me push back a little bit. Don't sure. you think that there's a level of sophistication that goes up? Mm-hmm. Uh, one, the longer a first generation immigrant's been here, and certainly a second generation like yourself uh-huh. or, or me, for instance, my mother was Mexican. Um, that it's no longer an issue of, well, you know, you insulted my country, you insulted my patrimony. There's there's a much more sort of fundamental understanding of the U.S. system. And the, uh, you know, voters, I think, can recognize flat-out pandering when they see it, right? That the longer you're sort of exposed to that. So it's it's not enough, as you say, yeah. for a, a national level politician to sort of well, I'm gonna I'm gonna punch this button here, and by by golly, I'm gonna get all the Mexicans on board, or I'm gonna get all the Venezuelans. You know, there's it's a little bit more nuance. So I, I see a future in which, you know, both parties have to really try a lot harder mm-hmm. to compete for these voters, giving a lot more level of nuance rather than just you know I'm pro-Cuba or anti-Cuba or pro-Mexico or anti-Mexico, because those will just be one of, I think, for a Mexican voter, yeah. just one of several topics that they're interested in. You know, your policy towards Mexico, great, of course. what's your policy on taxes and what's your policy on abortion and blah, blah, blah. Of course. No, I, yeah, no, I, let, let me rephrase that. Yeah, I think it's going to be part of a host of issues, right? But I think and it's not just, I think there's, it comes to a point where it's going to evolve from pandering to comfort. You know, I think because there's there's pandering, there's just direct pandering and just kind of like direct, you know, vote, you know, harvesting. There's but industrial then, pandering. There's retail pandering. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. And then there's just people who just, you know, you just feel comfortable with the politician you have because he just comes from a place where you, you know, where, you know, where your family comes from and you just know and you're just comfortable voting for him. Um, but, you know, when you look at 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 a place like not even just within Florida, but you look at the Hispanic community and you look at the issues that matter for them and you look at kind of like what are, what are the issues that they vote on? They don't really vote on immigration, right? They vote on like the economy, on education and on health care. Like those are like the top issue, like voting issues. And they're going to look at the candidates that actually have policies that, you know, that will lead to, to practical solutions. But if the candidates appear hostile or if the movement that they represent appears hostile, they're not going to vote yeah, for that. They won't get out of exactly. The yeah, exactly. Well, Anna, now that we've successfully dissected Florida politics and national yeah. politics, I'm expecting <laughs> the phone to start ringing off the hook from political consultants offering us six-figure salaries. Oh, yeah. to, right? I mean, oh yeah. I mean, just yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Either that, or we'll get termination notices. Though, Pretty right? much, right? right? <laughs> um, thanks very much for coming on the show to be both the sort of alpha and omega, or the omega and the alpha of the 35 <laughs> West. <laughs> I look forward to having you back at some point, and uh, again. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode and make sure to subscribe to 35 West on iTunes and SoundCloud.